you know, people who think and question are dangerous to the status quo. Um, and I get that. But right now, the status quo is dangerous to humanity. You know, the status quo is not going to work. So, you know, this is the time when, when you know, people like us are really important. And we have to come up with new and compelling ways to get people to value, um, to value humanity and humanism over their machine. Welcome to the Art of Humanity with Jessica Ann. Listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Explore creativity and consciousness. Evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Now, here's your host, Jessica Ann. Hi, I'm Jessica Ann, and this is the Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness to allow you and your business to evolve. For more episodes, you can check out the archives at jessicaannmedia.com. Thank you for tuning into this episode and for your patience when I took a bit of a break. The good news is that I took some time off to launch my book. It's called Humanize Your Brand, How to Create Content That Connects with Your Customers. And you can buy it on Amazon. There's the Kindle format, the paperback, and there's also going to be an audiobook version coming soon. You can check it out on Amazon.com. And again, the name of my book is Humanize Your Brand. I would love to know what you think. You can leave a review on Amazon or you can shoot me an email at hello at jessicaannmedia.com. In today's interview, I'm thrilled to have with me one of the world's greatest thinkers, media theorist and futurist Douglas Rushkoff. I'm beyond thrilled to have him as a guest. Douglas is also an author, teacher, and documentarian. He focuses on the ways that people, cultures, and institutions create, share, and influence each other's values. According to Rushkoff in his new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, the digital economy has gone wrong and no one quite knows how to fix it. But it doesn't have to be this way. In the era of big data and robots, Rushkoff explains why we need to optimize our machines to serve humanity rather than serve a very limited understanding. In this interview, we start off talking about his background, then we discuss technology, humanity, and maybe a little bit about... You know who? Donald Trump. So, Douglas, your work has always been very intriguing to me. And before we start digging into the gist of it, can you tell me a bit about your background, your story, where you're at, and what you're up to in the world today? Sure. Um, You know, I was originally a uh, a theater person. And I was interested in theater because... um, well, for a lot of reasons, but um, I, I was uh, kind of amazed by the idea that people would, you know, sit in an audience and receive something. You know, that theater was, why would people just stay in their chairs and not like jump up on the stage and do something? You know, the whole, the whole, uh, uh, the whole agreement was just kind of bizarre, wonderful, but bizarre. Um, but you know, once I thought theater, I realized, well, I want to be on the stage side of this thing rather than the audience side. You know, I want to be acting and doing rather than watching other people do that. And, um, you know, just the, the, the whole setup of theater that was, was just kind of bizarre and, and sort of metaphysically potent for me. And, um, then once, uh, interactivity emerged by the late 80s and early 90s, 
Um, it was as if that fourth wall of theater and film, the all the different ways that we did media were broken. You know, now you didn't just sit and watch a TV show. Now you talked through the screen to the TV show or you were part of the TV show. So uh, that shift from a kind of receive only passive way of doing media, unless you were some professional, to this very interactive peer-to-peer way of doing media um, just, you know, it kind of flipped my whole world. And I started to look at at everything in the world as up for discussion, you know, that all of these very closed, closed source, one way, uh, you know, read only systems out there may be up for discussion. You know, everything from, you know, the Judaism that I was taught as a kid, you know, when I looked at it again and said, well, wait a minute, Judaism was meant to be a discussion. It's these rabbis arguing around a table. It's Talmud where people comment on comments on comments. It's a discussion. And why can't everything be that? Why can't money be that? Why can't work be that? Why can't government be that? So I really became interested in bringing what turned out to be kind of an open source hacker-like sensibility to all of these systems that uh, were seen as closed. And where that's gotten me to now really is the the money system and the economy. You know, I, I've been, as I'm sure you and everybody around, every thinking person is looking at why are we... Why are we destroying our civilization? You know, mm-hmm. and is it necessary? You know, why do we have to, you know, globally warm ourselves into extinction? And, you know, the more I looked at it, the more to me it seemed that there were economic causes for this rather than technological ones. You know, and the the big problem that I'm working on today is, you know, how has our economic operating system become uh universally accepted as a given circumstance of our world. Why don't people recognize that this is a game? You know, they're all busy gamifying this aspect or that aspect of their business or commerce. They don't see that it's already a game. And I don't mean this metaphorically or in some silly way like you have to think about it. No, no. The market, the money itself is a way of gamifying trade and exchange of value between people. And that game is a, a 13th century game that was developed with really very specific um, needs in mind. It was invented to favor, you know, a, a really small group of nobles and aristocrats. And it worked really well for an expanding colonial economy and for, you know, uh, helping us uh, uh, create, you know, slave labor and extract all sorts of things from the world. But it's not really a good model for for humanity, you know, which is why I love the name of your show. You know, what we're doing is right now we have human beings in service of an economic system rather than doing the much easier thing, which is to develop an economic system that serves human beings. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important, I think, to actually be of service to humanity. And I think that a lot of your work explores that. A lot of your work really dives deep And there's a lot of profound thinking that goes into it. And a deep understanding is really necessary. As you mentioned, um, you know, your religion, Judaism, culture, society, technology, media, there's so many different aspects of humanity. 
So I'm, I'm curious, how do you come up with your ideas? Because your ideas are super fascinating to me and there's just so much going on. There's so many different ways that you can look at things. And I'm, I'm entirely curious, how do you actually kind of dive deep into these ideas and, and why do you want to continue exploring where your ideas take you? I don't know. I mean, it's... it. I guess there's a, there's a combination of passion and rigor. You know, it's like you can be passionate about figuring something out, but you kind of then the 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 thing that that helps is I'm I'm certainly more so anyway. I, I've gotten more rigorous in how I look at things. You know, so. It, it, I don't know. I don't really have a choice. I get frustrated by compromise and fantasy. I can't just let something sit, you know, if it's not true. And, you know, it's like my daughter is really frustrated that she has friends. Even in fifth grade, she has friends who believe in the Easter bunny. <laughs> and... It's kind of shocking and appalling to her that kids who are being taught science think that there's this bunny that lays eggs and that these eggs came from the Easter bunny, even though they're plastic and say made in China on them. It's like, well, where did the Easter bunny, they're, the Easter bunnies sourcing plastic eggs from China? Is that what's going on? Just <laughs> how do you think this is working? You know, so... Her frustration at that is the same as kind of, you know, my frustration with people and systems and businesses that don't look at what's actually going on here. You know, they just, it's almost like they, they get a job and open the drawer and there's the loose leaf notebook with the rules for how this is supposed to go and they just do it. And it's like, well, wait a minute, what is your business for? You know, and they're, and they kind of throw their arms up and say, I'm really, I'm sad at the, Im the impact our business has. I'm sad that our products actually aren't good. I'm sad that we're not serving our customers. I'm sad that we're exploiting our employees. I'm sad that I don't like my shareholders because they're demanding all this stuff. I'm sad that I have to make decisions based on the quarterly earnings of my company rather than the long-term impact of this company on the world and its customers and its employees and even its owners. Um, that enough, you know, that this is... Uh, uh, it's a kind of insanity. And when I see that environmentally, that it, that it could actually and probably is threatening, you know, the human environment, I have to go hang on, you know? And so, so it's sort of that it's both my, my kind of fear and passion for preserving humanity into another few centuries because I think humanity is interesting. I don't know who else is really thinking about things other than people. Mm -hmm. And uh, partly it's the, there's this tremendous energy that gets released when you see something for what it is, when you see behind the curtain, you know, and go, oh, that's what's going on. This is all fungible. This is all up for discussion. This can all be re-engineered and redesigned by humans for our, our own mutual benefit. Um, that, that it's, you know, what else, what else are you going to do with your time? It's either wake people up or put people to sleep. It's almost like you're constantly questioning things endlessly. And that's where the passion comes in. And like you said, the rigor also comes in because you're just never happy with the answers almost. Yeah. Yeah, in a way. I mean, which is, 
you know, some people would look at that as a curse. You know, they used to call that the wandering Jew, you know, always unsatisfied, you know, and that's why, you know, people who think and question are dangerous to the status quo. Um, and I get that. But right now, the status quo is dangerous to humanity. You know, the status quo is not going to work. So, you know, this is the time when, when you know, people like us are really important. And we have to come up with new and compelling ways to get people to value, um, to value humanity and humanism over their machines, to value people over marketplaces, and to understand that these are, that these are two really different things. You know, and, and I'm particularly concerned now that we are you know, programming the corporations of tomorrow. You know, the corporations of tomorrow are more like Amazon and Uber. They are algorithms. They are not people. They're platforms. And if we're programming our platforms principally to extract value from people and places, then I don't know what happens after that. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how we undo how we undo things that we set in motion this way. You know, this is very different than the industrial age. Tools don't just sit there. They keep going. They modify. They evolve based on whatever we've optimized them for. And I'm, I'm, what I'm running around doing is just pleading that we try to optimize our machines to serve humanity rather than to serve a very limited understanding of how markets work. I love that. And I think that it's so important these days to really be aware of how we're being programmed. Um, I see such a paradox, though, because at the same time, I mean, I love the efficiency of Uber and I love the efficiency that technology brings. And you say that we need to optimize our machines to serve humanity. But at the same time, it almost feels like as humans, we are benefiting a lot from technology. So well, it depends. It depends. You know, what you have to do, though, is see the whole picture. So, you know, your cell phone, uh, you know, playing a YouTube, you can go, oh, this is great. I'm using no electricity. It's just my little cell phone. And it's like, well, hang on. If you look at the supply side of your cell phone, there's little African children going into mines and dying to get, you know, rare earth, you know, minerals and and you know, war minerals uh, to make that phone work. And when you're streaming, I mean, a, a, an average smartphone uses two refrigerators worth of electricity. So even though you only see the little battery, all those servers and things that you're pulling on are, are a massive drain on the, on the power grid. That's why things cost money. It's because you're using all that, all that electricity. So if you're thinking of this little phone in your pocket as two refrigerators worth of electricity churning, you go, oh, well, I guess it's efficient. But, you know, if you think of Uber as, yeah, for you on the very end of this, this, uh, uh, on the very end of this supply chain, yeah, you got a car, it came, it took you, it went. It's like, yeah, but what's the, what's the deeper, bigger cost of having a platform that's extracting capital and labor from all of these people who are basically just doing research and development on a platform that's going to replace their labor in a few years with automatic cars anyway, with no participation in the profits of that platform. You know, so the hidden the hidden costs are high. So while the price may be low and the convenience may be huge, the true cost of these things is much, much bigger than is apparent as we use them. 
If we tap deeper into that, there's this constant need to always be connecting and consuming something online. So as a media theorist and a futurist, is there any benefit to going down this path and, and really analyzing where we're going? Like, how can we, what is a good solution to all of the technological issues that might be caused by the constant cons consumption of media and technology? Well, you know, I'm not arguing against people using this stuff. Obviously, this stuff is really cool. You know, the, the internet and networking can make things way more apparent than they are. You know, the, the easiest way to figure out what's going on in the world, really, um, or the, the greater world, the macro world, is to go online and see how things are connected. You know, most of our platforms are not encouraging us to do that. You know, most of our platforms are encouraging us to find our affinity group and, you know, shut the hell up. But uh, there are, there are uh, you know, there's, a, there's this website I went to called, um, what's it, um, Slavery, uh, uh, I think it was Slavery Watch or, or uh, something like that, slaverywatch.org. And, and, and what, it, what it did was it calculates how many slaves are working for you. You know, so you, you know, you fill in like how big is your apart, how many bedrooms is your apartment? Do you have a kid? You know, how many, you know, do you have a car? What, you know, what appliances do you have? You fill in all this stuff and it fills in this little house and then it, oh, it's called slavery, slaveryfootprint.org. And then it tells you how many slaves are working for you. Um, because there are, you know, depending on how, how much you have, you just don't see them. So there the internet is being used to calculate and make apparent um, what's going on. And then they give you, you know, ways to actually, you know, either reduce your slavery footprint or to help, you know, uh, uh, you know, make uh, the labor more just, you know, they give you lots of different ways to, to engage. Um, so, you know, to the extent that these technologies can make things more apparent, connect people to ways of, of actually engaging and doing things, um, they're, they're terrific. The, to the extent that they replace eye contact, that they replace your local reality and your connection with other people, they're a problem. So in some senses, it's really just a matter of maintaining balance, you know, and because we do all spend so much time on our, our desktops and laptops um, and speaking through, through, you know, Skype and video rather than with each other, you have to really be conscious when you are with other people that you soak in what that means, that you look into people's eyes. And that's not just some weird spiritual thing. You look into people's eyes so that you can subconsciously see whether their pupils are getting bigger or smaller as you speak, to see whether you're forming rapport with this other person or whether you're pushing them away, to be in an actual physical space with them, looking at them so your body can breathe with their body and you can be literally inspired, taking in air from, from them, from these other people in your cohort. You know, that, that the more and more... Uh, alienated from all of these, these you know, kind of uh, evolved social cues that we have as animals, um, the less and less solidarity we have. You know, the less 
able we are to really to think like humans and the more conditioned we are to think in the ways that our machines uh, train us to. You know, there's a whole lot of human psychology and human activity that really, honestly, I promise you, your iPhone doesn't understand. There's things that we don't yet know. You know, when you're with another person holding their hand, making love, holding a child, um, the, the, the kinds of interaction I can't believe I'm actually having to argue for this, but the, the kinds of things that happen to you are beyond what the internet understands. They're beyond what our technologies understand. And they are, they are grounding and reinforcing in ways that help us develop priorities and make choices in different ways than we would if we're just kind of living in, a, in a, even a great Google Cardboard VR reality. So we have to you know, take advantage of those opportunities to connect with other people as much as possible because if for no other reason than our bodies have evolved to depend on those things for, uh, for a sense of orientation and well-being. Isn't it fascinating that we do now have to kind of argue for that? I mean, I think sometimes we forget and it's and it's easy to forget because our whole lives are run by technology and and you talk about this in your book Present Shock when everything happens now. You define present shock as the human response to living in a world where everything happens at once, where we can no longer think about the future because this moment is everything. Um, but there, at the same time, there's almost a little bit of a paradox here because in one way, if you are so in tune with nature and if you're a Zen meditator or a master, the moment is everything. But in your book, you discuss it in almost a postmodernist, dystopic kind of way. What does this mean for business owners and people who need to think about the future? Well, people who need to think about the future kind of have to decide which future they're thinking about. Are they thinking about you know, the day after tomorrow, or are they thinking about next year and next decade? You know, uh, I, I think it's healthier, particularly in times of economic stress, for people to think about their businesses more in the way that uh, family business owners think about their businesses. You know, family businesses, um, they don't do as well in rapid, sudden boom spikes, but they do better in every other situation, in every other market. You know, they, they make more money over the long term. They do much better during downturns. They maintain better environmental records, better, or, or better uh, consumer, uh, customer relationships. Um, they have, you know, obviously they have longer employee retention and more expertise. And that's because, you know, if you're a family business, it's your name on the thing. You're thinking not just about how am I going to satisfy my shareholders this quarter, but how am I going to create a legacy for my children, right? So the, the way most of us think about a legacy for your children is how can I extract enough money from my business or the economy in order to have a nest egg that my child can inherit as cash? Whereas if you have a family business, you're thinking, how can I create a business that's going to have a job that my child is going to want to take 50 years from now? And that's such a healthier way to think 
right? That's one that's, so you're thinking about how can I create a business that's going to be resilient enough and nimble enough to change with the markets and develop things and have good relationships with the community so that my kid can go to school and not have people hate him, you know, so that, <laughs> that, that, that we are not remembered, you know, so that the Rushkovs are not remembered as that mean family that ruined this town or as a family that has to, you know, after you destroy something, you know, the, the, the sort of the Rockefeller or Carnegie way, then, oh, well, don't worry, we'll create a foundation later to compensate. You know, I, I, I'm always, I find it so funny when I see like, you know, Facebook's saying, oh, we're going to, the, the Zuckerberg, we're going to give 90% of our, 99% of our money to charity before we die. It's like, well, that means you took too much to begin with, you know, <laughs> and when you extract that much from the economy, in his case, as shares of dead stock, he's ended up with a big sack of capital that's been taken out of the transactional marketplace and frozen in storage. And now he's going to try to put it back in as if the ecosystem wasn't already destroyed in the process. You know, and that's why you have to stop. And, and I think family businesses do. They stop thinking about their businesses as vacuum cleaners that are extracting values from the places uh, it, it goes. And much more like, how can we be involved in the circulation of assets through this community? How can we become a living member of this thing rather than a dead uh, extractor of life from this thing? A living member of this thing and of this thing you're talking about is really the medium. And would you agree? It's the medium and the the message that that we're using today. And and that's such a huge part of your work. Um, well, let me let me step back a little bit. Marshall McLuhan said the phrase "the medium is the message" way back in 1964. And and I think that we need to realize, or maybe if you can disagree or agree with me here. Um, we are almost the medium in a way when we are not being proactive and really being in touch with how we're interacting with the media today. So, so two questions here. How and why does this phrase that McLuhan coined back in 1964, how is this even more prescient today than ever? And how can anyone who's listening now, how can we learn from this concept when it comes to how we interact with the world or maybe even how we market our business? Well, I mean, for McLuhan, I mean, it was sort of, he was talking in the age of television. So, uh, you know, the medium is, is the message, you know, most simply would mean, you know, that the, the message of television may less be the content. It may less be the program you're watching than what is that TV set doing to you? In other words, what, what is the, what is the, what are the pixels doing to you? What does it mean to sit in front of this, these lights? What is, what is the environment that's created by a different medium. How does the radio environment differ from the television environment as a as a world in which to live? You know, and they are they are you know radically different places. So, if if you're thinking ab about that, then then when you get to an interactive age, it becomes all the more obvious. So you know when you are are swiping your cell phone to see if there's a new email. Are you playing your phone or is your phone playing you? You know, I've come to believe that our phones are playing us more than we're playing them. I mean, that's why they're called smartphones. You know, we're not called smart users. They're <laughs> smart devices because every swipe, everything that you do on your phone is recorded, is, is used by the phone and the platforms and the companies behind them to 
gain intelligence about us. What will make you check your email more? What sound will make you check it more? What animation will make you tweet more or look more or read more or click more? So your your phones and devices and platforms are are evolving themselves, sometimes without even human intervention. They're self-evolving, moving things around and putting them in the places where they're going to get the most um, uh, the most activity from you. So it's a really clear case where the medium, the phone, really is the message. The message here is what? You know, is that <laughs> is that uh, you're being played. You know, that that we get dumber as our as our devices get uh, more powerful. But the the bigger thing he was trying to refer to is almost a, an ancient idea about, you know, the medium and messenger really is another way of saying uh, uh, figure and ground, you know, that, that we keep looking at the subject of the picture rather than the whole picture around it. You know, you you look at um, Eastern cultures and you show them a picture of, you know, a cow on a, on a pasture. You ask them, what's that a picture of? They'll say it's a picture, a picture of a pasture. You know, they won't say, in, in America, we'll say, oh, it's a picture of a cow. You know, if you ask people later to describe what's in the picture, the American will be able to describe what was it, what the cow was like, but won't even remember if there was a barn in the background or if the grass was green or where the sun was, whereas the Asian person will know uh, uh, all that context, all that ground, but won't really be so focused on the, on the figure, you know, and that's sort of the, the, uh, the sensibility that McLuhan was trying to make us more aware of is the context in which things happen. You know, the cell phone is not an object. The cell phone is a culture. The cell phone is a an environment, is how he'd put it. That in in and it it's it changes how people interact. It changes how people um, how people think. You know, and then he got accused of being a techno determinist, as if he was saying, "Oh, the cell phone changes us." That's not what he's saying. What he's really saying is that we're living in a cell phone environment, and you sh- the cell phone itself isn't necessarily the cause any more than it is the the result. In other words, we're moving from one phase of civilization into another, and uh, sure, our devices, our media are going to change, you know, right along with that, both causing that change and responding to that change. It's kind of a, a feedback loop between humans and their technologies. And if we're not aware of that, um, then, you know, we kind of end up at the mercy of unintended consequences. Then we're not really, you know, using human agency to direct our future, but we're partnered with these technologies and media whose biases and agendas we don't necessarily understand. You're so disconnected from um, uh, being able to have a kind of an intentional calendar about things that it's, uh, you know, it's tricky. It is very tricky. Um, and, and you did mention a hot button issue that people love to talk about right now, Donald Trump. And without going into politics too much, um, well, it's important to mention that I do not support any of Trump's ideologies. But without talking about Well, you about don't her- know that you don't support any of them. I mean, he wanted, uh, wanted single-payer health care. Maybe he doesn't now, but that was a pretty liberal policy. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Random. You don't necessarily support any of that. I mean, it's sort of a random, a random assortment of policies right now, so it's hard. But yeah. I can't say I disagree with everything he says because I don't know everything he says, you know, from one day to the next anyway. But yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. But um, without digging too deep into the politics of it, uh, you recently wrote an article on digitaltrends.com titled Donald Trump Works the Internet Better Than You Do, Whether He Knows It or Not. And in this article, you argue that we, what reality TV did to network television, Trump is doing to network news. Can you explain this a little bit? Yeah, I mean, really what I'm arguing is that he is a, a kind of the first uh, digigenic candidate in a certain way. You know, that if you think of uh, you know, how we moved from the radio environment to the TV environment to now the digital environment. You know, we had candidates who were radio candidates back in the radio era. You know, the FDR was a radio candidate who could talk to people and kind of galvanize them um, uh, over the air, which is really what radio does. Radio is a, a comforting uh, uh, kind of a, a hearth like medium. You know, television was a cooler medium, according to McLuhan. It was more critical. People looked at it. You could see, you know, it back in the old days with black and white TV, you actually had to participate just to almost render an image with your eyes because it was so it was so blurry. And that favored folks like, you know, Kennedy, who was a cool candidate. It would favor Obama, who's a cool candidate. We always talk about how cool he is. It's, uh, and even um, uh, Hillary, although she's hotter as a candidate now because she's kind of louder. Um, she's she's of the television generation. It's about policy and numbers and statistics. And if you're going to be rational, you're going to vote for her because she is, even the Republicans say she's the most qualified, but that's, <laughs> what does that matter? But right. that's sort of television. You know, to be a digigenic candidate, you know, I guess we're finding out what that means, but it's almost to be more like Charlie Sheen, to say things that are going to get retweeted, to be able to, uh, you know, to sound a bit like the comment section of a, uh, of a blog, you know, where those trolls are, mm. who are, who are just, you know, saying things that are going to get uh, retweet it that you're going to get uh, argued about. You know, when you, a troll in a comments in a comment section draws out the author of the piece and tries to distract them from whatever it was that they were arguing. You know, there's professional trolls out there. So you know, he's got he's got the sound of that. And and meanwhile, um, he was able to hack the the political economy really of network news that everyone is is out for ratings and he said things that would get news channels ratings, get them better numbers in the short term. So MSNBC and CNBC and you know everybody and Fox and everybody, they have to show what Trump said because that's going to get the most clicks. That's going to get the most views, even if it didn't create a balanced newscast. So they were pressured into into uh, uh, showing his stuff by their own business models. What they didn't realize is that they were undermining themselves in the long run, right? They kind of created this monster and now he's attacking them. You know, now he, whenever they ask him a question, he, he flips it on them. So in terms of their long-term strategy, it was really dumb to uh, uh, focus on the short-term ratings because now they don't uh, there's really no market for uh, genuine, for true, you know, political commentary, for intelligent 
um, conversation about this. And they have to try to demonstrate that they're being balanced by uh, giving him time now. Now he's the leader. You know, he's 40-something percent. So, uh, you know, they... they I feel like uh, you know Donald Trump was very good at at both hacking the business plan of cable news and sort of being a a a Charlie Sheen like internet phenomenon, you know, and he knows he knows how to be that. It's definitely the opposite of the status quo, it seems. In a certain way, I mean, uh, although it, it does give voice to repressed cultural agendas, you know, the fear Americans have of terror and all that. I mean, if you look at the the, the television media environment was about connecting everybody. We lived in the, the big blue marble, you know, and it was an era where we went to space and took a picture of the earth and we saw it all, we're all connected, you know, and, and television really, the television era was about globalism and connection. The internet era, the digital era is so much more about discrete things, about making choices, about being in your individual silo. You know, digital really is much more um, divisive and discrete, even though, you know, most of us thought, oh, look, the internet's going to connect everybody. It really doesn't. It, it kind of divides people into their own little groups so that while you have, you know, Reagan the, at the height of the television era going to Berlin and saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, D- Donald Trump at the beginning of the digital era says, let's build a wall. You know, let's build a wall between us and Mexico. You know, and that is sort of, you know, uh, for people who want to understand what a media environment is, that's the difference between new media environments. You know, one media environment encourages a uh, uh, sort of satellite eye view of the world, you know, of the landing on the moon, of the Olympics, and we're watching things simultaneously as a planet. And the other is uh, much more about who are we, who are they? It's about nationalism and distinctions and who are those immigrants trying to come and who really is, you know, who's the real leader of Egypt? It's, it's, it's very, very local. It's very uh, national and, and divided. And, you know, Trump speaks to that, um, which is why he, he really does, uh, you know, exhibit in some ways the biases of a digital media environment before we've had a chance to really think about them and reckon with, well, how do we do this intelligently rather than, you know, in this kind of knee-jerk way. So tell me a little bit more about your current work and your new book that's coming out soon. Um, sure. I just, uh, I just finished a book that comes out in March um, called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. And I'm really looking at most of the issues we've been talking about today, you know, how we ended up you know, optimizing the digital economy for growth rather than for the circulation of value. So we end up uh, you know, with really people working for high-tech business plans rather than high-tech business plans working for people. Mm-hmm. And so you look, you know, and it's it, a, a great image of this of this problem is in, you know, in San Francisco where you would have thought Google would have made the town wealthier. Um, you've got people throwing rocks at the buses that convey the employees from San Francisco down to Mountain View um, because they're unable to, they can't live in their own communities anymore. You know, that the economy's become distorted. The distribution of wealth has been really unequal. 
um, and it's only getting it's only getting worse. So really, what I do is sort of is present. Um, both big businesses and little businesses with, you know, sort of easy steps that they can take uh, to begin to become more distributive, longer term businesses that really contribute to the prosperity of the communities in which they live rather than just extract value and deliver it up to shareholders who don't really know what to do with it. And the money just gets stuck. So it's kind of like, how do you unconstipate um, the digital economy, and that's by getting stuff back into circulation, and it's not—it's um, not really that hard to do. It's important work, and it's so important to think about. Where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? I mean, I guess the easiest yeah, you go to rushkoff.com and you know you see my website, and you can find out about my books there. You know, go on Amazon and and pre-order "Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus." I promise you will not be disappointed with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wrote it in a way that now I feel like I almost don't have to write another book. That I really kind of set it, uh, you know, pretty clear. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, I can't um, wait to read it. Yeah, so that one's there. And, uh, you know, those are the easy way. The other thing is, you know, if you're really committed, come on and study. You know, we just started a new master's program in media and social change at CUNY Queens. So, you know, by going to a public school, um, I was able to start a program where I'm not going to have to put people in lifelong debt. You know, you go to a regular grad program and you spend like $60,000 a year to study, mm-hmm. you know, whereas here you get a whole degree for like 10 grand and, uh, that's kind of a bargain, you know. It's kind of media studies for occupiers, if you will. It's, uh, you know, for people who really want to look at the intersection of media and social change, media and activism, and, you know, and do it without breaking the bank with other people who, uh, you know, with a, with a cohort of, uh, of potential comrades to, you know, make some good trouble. So we're having fun over there. Awesome. Yeah, I wish I would have knew, knew about you back when I started my master's yeah. program. <laughs> it would have saved me a lot of money. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much cool. for joining me. I'm going to put all of this information in the show notes available on jessicaannmedia.com. And Douglas, thank you so much for joining me. It was such a pleasure and honor to talk with you. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And thanks for what you do. You know, go humans. Go humans. <laughs> <laughs> One of the ways that I've built an engaged audience of over 100,000 readers over the years is content marketing. Content marketing is real, relevant, and inspiring information that helps your business to grow, it brings in money, and it allows your website to endlessly be exposed to new audiences. This translates into more impact, influence, and sales. But before you start your blog, the one thing that you'll need, no matter what, is a web hosting provider. One web hosting provider that I recommend is HostGator. If you go to HostGator.com and use the code JAM2016, you can get 25% off of all new hosting packages with HostGator. So go to HostGator.com and sign up today. Thanks for listening to The Art of Humanity. Please follow us on Twitter at It's Jessica Ann. Join us next week with your host, Jessica Ann. Evolve your business with The Art of Humanity.